Welcome to Brandon Abatz. We are truly delighted to be rejoined by one of our favorite guests, Stephen Kirshner. One of Stephen Kirshner's most infamous episodes is no longer available on our YouTube channel, but is available on Spotify. Today, we thought we'd talk about something really uncontroversial and wholesome. We're going to be talking about sport. Stephen, would you like to take it away with a thought experiment? Sure. Uh, before I start, just uh, two quick points. So one is the views I, I set forth are my own. They don't reflect my employer, any group I'm a member, the Temple Shalom, Chapag Valley High School or the Lincoln Judo Club. And in addition, I'd, I'd really like to thank Mark and Jason for having me on. I mean, it's just an honor and a pleasure to be with them. I just really enjoy our conversations. They're fantastically bright and I benefit enormously from my interactions with them. So thank you. Okay. So what, what I would like to start out with is the case of Leah Thomas. So Leah Thomas is a University of Pennsylvania swimmer. She is a transgender woman and she switched uh, from being a member of, of the men's swimming team at Penn to a member of the women's team at Penn. She won the collegiate championship um, in the 500 meter, and she won by over seconds, 1.75 seconds. She was on one account, written up by her teammates, who remained anonymously. She was the 462nd ranked male swimmer in a category, the 500 meter, and became the first ranked women swimmer in that category. And so an issue which has been enormously controversial and generating enormous heat is whether or not she should be allowed, whether, whether transgender women should be allowed to compete in collegiate sports on the women's side. And what I want to argue is that, in fact, it's discretionary. There's the wrong answer. The, the, the collegiate swimmer pen or the Ivy League or the NCAAs, it's permissible for them to allow her to swim. It's permissible for them to not allow her to swim. So I think both of those are true. So let me just briefly go over, over the argument and then see what you guys have to say. So the argument is that different collegiate sports rules are all rights respecting. So I'm going to use a non-consequential approach first. So that the different, no matter what set of collection of rules you have, so long as you're not using force, fraud, and theft, they're going to be rights respecting. And if no matter what set of rules you have, so long as they're applied as, as written, for example, then college, whatever set of rules you adopt will be a moral free zone. That is, in short, college sports will be a moral free zone, meaning that different rules or practices are all going to be morally permissible. And if college sports are a moral free zone, then college sports have discretion with regard to who is eligible to compete in general in collegiate sports or particular categories such as women's 500 meters. And if the collegiate uh, sports university or league, the Ivy League or the NCAs, if they have discretion with regard to who is, it, who is eligible to compete, then as a result, they have discretion as to whether or not to allow transgender women to compete against cisgender women. Now, let me just briefly set out a few underlying assumptions here. First, my assumption is that with regard to non-consequentialism, the right is a function of and only of what moral rights people have. There are not other considerations, or if they are, rights trump them. Second, that there's going to be nothing that competitor considerations, things like degradation, exploitation, unfairness, and harm, either have to be incorporated to rights or they're not relevant for non-consequentialism. So I'm very curious about this notion of a moral free zone. Okay. So if I understood correctly, you're saying 
college-based sports are moral-free zones. What does that mean exactly? Does that mean that people's feelings are unimportant if we're consequentialist or if we're non-consequentialist, that people's rights are unimportant other than in the rights and obligations that the college uh, bestows on them? So let's, let's take the non-consequentialist first, and then we'll look at the consequentialist approach, which you and I have a lot of sympathy for. But the non-consequentialist approach uh, says, is there, is there a lawmaker presence? That is, if the colleges decided to exclude people who are 25 and older, would, would that be wrong? If they decide to include people 25 and older, would that be wrong? And the idea is that there's no wrongmaker present in terms of the various rules, right? Rules with regard to, for example, who's eligible, what events to have, in fact, what sports to offer, right? University of Pennsylvania might decide not to have a swimming team or not to have a wrestling team, or it might decide to have both. The idea is that by a moral free zone, what I, what I mean is th there's no wrong action here. All the options, again, leaving aside force, fraud, and theft are permissible. And let me give the underlying considerations. It's a fairly strong assumption. Here's the underlying consideration. If one person acts wrongly, and again, it's from a non-consequential approach, if one person acts wrongly, then he wrongs someone. That is, there, there's, there's no um, free floaty wrongs, wrongs which don't, which don't wrong anyone, at least from a non-consequential perspective. Second, if one person wrongs the second person, then the first fails to satisfy a duty he owes to the second. That is, he infringes a duty. And third, a righteous is a duty. So if you fail to satisfy a duty you owe to someone because a righteous is a duty, that is, it's claim, therefore, if someone acts wrongly, the person infringes a, a claim of someone, right? leaving aside self-wronging. Self so if one person acts wrongly, he harms a second. What follows from this is that if one person does not infringe anyone's right, then one person doesn't act wrongly. Now, take college sports. Do you have a right against a college that it adopt any set of rules in terms of which sports to offer? No, it's hard to see why you have a right against a college that it offer or not offer a sport. Now, take certain events within a sport. Do you have a right that the college fund or have certain events within a sport? It's hard to see where that would come from, right? It's a little hard to see why this is anything but a moral free zone, whereby the owners of the university may set up the, the, the sport, the owners of the league may set up the league, and if you want to participate, you validly consent. Once you validly consented, you've waived any right that might be infringed. And I doubt that's the right infringement to begin with, but even if there is, you've waived it. So if you step on the football field or you go onto the wrestling mat, people are going to do fairly violent things to you. Why is that okay? Because you've waived your right. And this is in general. So once people waive their right to participate in these sports, it's hard to see what the right infringement is. And going back to our initial claim, if there's no right infringement, then there's no wrong maker. And consequentialism, I mean, there, if we're just going to use straight, you know, what, what maximizes utility, I just don't think we know the answer to these things, right? Do we get more or less utility if we allow transgender act, uh, athletes to participate? Well, it seems to be like it's a difficult balancing act, right? Certainly there are many, many people seem to be upset by transgender athletes competing. On the other hand, it's not clear that the magnitude uh, of the degree to which they're upset is, is that great, even though large numbers are upset. On the other hand, the, the, the transgender people and their families, there might be many fewer of them, but they seem to be upset to an extreme degree. 
So how do we balance these things out? Well, in the absence of a market, which would really be the only way, reliable mechanism we have to balancing out the pros and the cons, do something like cost-benefit analysis, we're just guessing. And if we're just guessing, here's kind of a, a good rule of thumb how to proceed. If we think the consequential balance should determine whether or not we have something, and we don't know what the consequential balance is, then as a rule of thumb, both approaches are permissible. I, I wonder about this objection sure. uh, to the non-consequentialist view. Suppose that a particular university implemented a rule which said that no black players may play sport within the, the university. If I understand your account correctly, the non-consequentialist account, so the Kantian account or the deontological account, I wonder whether you committed to the view that there's there's nothing right or wrong about that. That's permissible. University can set up those rules. Those are the rules. You sign up or you don't sign up. That's your problem. And no player has has a right to demand that the university allow black students to play. Is that correct? Is that a, is that a consequence of your view? So as far as moral rights, that is a consequence of my view, right? I mean, you might think there are certain constitutional considerations that kick into play with regard to state universities. But let's think about, well, we all think that race discrimination is disgusting and offensive. And I certainly have that reaction. I'm sure the two of you do as well. The question is what right is infringed on with regard to various black athletes that wish to participate? Well, it could be a right that irrelevant characteristics not be used, but on one, this is kind of odd because you can distribute things via lottery. That seems to be a relevant characteristic. Second. The reason we have for not discriminating against certain races might be that the overall balance of reasons for society as a whole doesn't favor it. But that's not a rights-based argument. That's a consequentialist argument. If we're worried about the interests of third parties, that tells us that we're outside of the realm of rights. Rather, we're talking about overall consequences. And third, even if there were a right against race discrimination, because it's an irrelevant characteristic, whether or not being a biological woman is a relevant characteristic is precisely what's at issue. So this would beg the question. So we can't really see a right against discrimination based on an irrelevant characteristic. One, because we can use, we, we, we can and sometimes do use them all the time in terms of lotteries or first come, first served. Second, it relies on a balance of reasons, which is a consequential consideration. And third, applying it to transgender, this is what's at issue. What about the notion that you shouldn't discriminate um, on the basis of race because uh, people can't control their race? Well, this is not a, 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 a right that people have. I mean, blind people are not allowed to drive trucks, but they don't control whether or not they're blind. That's not a right infringement. Similarly, if we have to find someone to be an undercover agent to infiltrate various uh, criminal organizations in Chinatown, uh, New York City, uh, the fact that someone's not Chinese, they don't control that, but that's a good reason for not trying to use them as an undercover agent, right? They're not going to last very long. What about the claim you have a right against discrimination based on your race? Well, the problem with that theory is it's arbitrary. Why race? Why not? Why not your sex? Why not your age? Why not any number of characteristics? Why not your IQ? So the fact of the matter is there does not seem to be any right infringed per se by race discrimination. Now, if you have a problem, you have a, a, a constitutional system set up and it's a fundamental agreement then you have a promise-based right that's infringed, but that's very different from a right itself. In addition, you might think, well, 
okay, the reason we should not discrimination against race is because it doesn't have achieved good consequences. So, all right, I, I, you know, we, we can see it, okay, on rights-based account, there's nothing wrong with race discrimination, but it, it, it doesn't achieve the best consequences. But, but ask yourself, is, is that always true? I mean, sometimes race, ethnicity, or gender can be statistically discriminatory factors. That is, they tell us things. I'll just give you a quick example. On some accounts, 25% of um, female physicians in the U.S. don't work don't work full-time. I'm, I'm trying to remember the numbers. I hope I'm getting right. I know my apologies. And I think something like 40% of, of British physicians. Okay. Again, trying to remember these numbers. If I get them wrong, my apologies. Would that be a reason to discriminate against female applicants for medical school? Well, if we want to maximize health for a population, it would be. Someone's sex or gender would be a statistically predict a statistical predictor. Why would we not pay attention to that if we're trying to maximize the good? Now, when it comes to private entities, I've, I've been so far discussing public entities, but should private businesses be able to discriminate? That is, do they infringe on anyone's right or do they to fail to maximize the good? Well, look, it's hard to see how a private business, someone has a right to work at someone's private business. If I want to work at Jones's auto uh, repair place, it's hard to see how I have a right to his income, to be at his property, to be under his authority. By analogy, if we can engage in racial discrimination with regard to our sexual practices, right? For example, in the earlier conversation, imagine someone had a yellow fever and his sexual preferences ran to East Asian women. It's hard to see that that would infringe anyone's right. And it's hard to see why we should think someone's private business is different than his sexual life. What about consequences, right? Does it have a really bad effect if businesses um, are allowed to discriminate on the basis of race, ethnicity, or sex, for example. This is not obvious. I mean, people often think the answer is yes, but one, there's a pretty heavy financial penalty for discrimination if it's irrational. That is, you're going to have to pay more for labor, for example. And second, to the degree to which statistical factors are accurate predictors, it might increase the efficiency by the individual businesses or industries as a whole, because we're now able to take into account these statistically accurate predictors. So in short, I do not think that race discrimination infringes someone's rights. And I'm not even sure that race discrimination even fails to maximize the good. The market will provide plenty of protection against irrational discrimination. Okay, a couple of responses. The one might be the way that you've dealt with discrimination is to silo out your categories. So I want to give you a kind of conjunctive case, which would sure. be, we say it's wrong to discriminate against someone when it is both arbitrary and on an immutable characteristic. So you've given us cases where it's okay to do it on the one, but if I join the two together, it might be harder. So I can grant you your Chinatown undercover cop case where we can say, look, I'm sorry, but we, in order to do this, this undercover role, you have to be Chinese. It's a relevant characteristic. So we're discriminating on the grounds of an immutable characteristic, namely your ethnic appearance, but it's non-arbitrary given the, the facts of the case. But when we're dealing with the situation where we go, we're discriminating against you on this immutable characteristic and it's without any underlying reason, then it seems harder to justify. And I suppose one can cash that out in senses of saying, well, one has a prima facie right not to be discriminated against on those bases, and maybe there can be defeaters, but it seems like it gets harder when we put those two things together. But 
think about the notion that there's no um, underlying reason, which, which you see, you have a conjunctive case. You'd say, look, discrimination, there's no right infringed when the, it's irrelevant. There's no right infringed when it's out of your control, but the conjunction of those is, is wrong. And, and the reason is really, we should understand this as a right against discriminating against you when, out, when, when there's no underlying reason. Well, one problem with this is the reasons are either confined to the individual or they're not. If they're not confined to the individual, then it looks like this is not a right-based account. That is the relation, wh whether you have a right against me depends about facts on the uh, about the two of us. It does not depend about facts about you, me, and the Saturday Night Live church lady. So if the relevant reasons are comparative, they, they involve three or more people, then they're not going to be rights justifying. So, so that, that's the underlying problem. The second problem is that it seems that just intuitively we can use irrelevant and out of control features. For example, imagine that it's just more efficient for the University of Michigan among students who are in the top 1% of their, their high school class to then use a lottery. And you say, okay, well, a lottery is irrelevant. I mean, who cares where you are, random feature, and no one has any control over where they end up in the lottery. So a lottery for students who are the top 1% of the high school class would not be permitted but it seems that it would be. So I, so I think I have two objections here. One of which is I just don't think what's really going on is there's no underlying reason. And I, I just think these reasons are not what justify rights. The reasons have to be very specific to justify rights. Secondly, I, I think the sort of reason is not rights justifying. And in addition, it's just intuitively incorrect. So I want to return back to our trans topic and let's, let's think about it at the kind of Olympic level. So you've got the, the, the creme de la creme of athletes, you know, competing around the world. And one of the arguments for exclusion of trans athletes is going to be that they have an, an unfair advantage. And so what's, what the Olympic committee has done is it said, well, we're going to allow trans athletes in, they must do certain things. So for example, they must have been transitioned for a certain period of time. They must alter their chemical makeup by um, reducing their testosterone levels. Now, there could be a couple of objections to this. The one is to say, well, why require them to have to jump through these hoops? You don't require uh, Michael Phelps to adjust his physiology to compete. The guy is a genetic freak. He's got these huge innate disadvantages over other people. He's got, I think he's ambidextrous. He's got webbed uh, feet and hands and he's massively tall. The, the guy's just got this unfair, unnatural ability, which he can just use to, to, to mop up the floor. No, no one stands a chance against him. And no one's saying, hey, Mike, we need to Harrison Berger on you. And, you know, if you haven't read Harrison Berger on, go pick up the Kurt Vonnegut short story. It's fantastic. And we're not going to like make the game fair by encumbering you and chopping some of your toes off. You're just naturally gifted. So go right ahead. So why do this to the trans athletes? Why not just let them compete? And why require them to sort of have to do this identification for a period of time? Just say, well, you've declared yourself this now, compete. And then the other view is to say, well, you're going to eradicate women's sports if you do that. That if you look at someone like who is, there's a, there's a debate about what category she run in. South Africans all wanted to run because we're very proud of her. She gets gold medals. Other people say she's got this innate unfair advantage. But Custer runs basically at the level of a high school male athlete. The Williams sisters, for example, both played against the guy who was ranked 200th in tennis. He played both of them after having a six pack of beer and playing a round of golf. And he beat them both, I think six love. So if we just allowed, in other words, if we withdrew gender divisions entirely, it seems like we'd eradicate women's sports. Maybe not all of them. Maybe women have a chance in some categories, 
but in a lot, they just be overrun by men. And the question is, well, if you're a, if you're a trans woman, are you being overrun by, by another woman or are you being overrun by a man? I also want to add to Mark's question because your initial claim was that at college level, it's a moral free zone. So in other words, the university decides, the college decides what the rules are and those are the rules and you can participate or not, but that's, you have no right to demand that the rules change. Is that also the case at the top level, at Olympic level or championship level? Great. So the, the short answer is yes, exactly. Uh, the, the Olympics are a moral free zone, just as our college sports. So the question is, isn't there an unfairness here? And even if there isn't an unfairness, won't we just eliminate women's sports because they can't really compete against men or even in some cases on boys? So first of all, I, I, we should start by noticing that in fact, competitions are not fair in life in general. So, so take advanced math in high school, in which case you have these, these brilliant South Africans with IQs above 140, the sort of people are going to go to the University of Cape Town. You know, the type really bright. And then they're competing in, in, in math class against someone with an IQ of, you know, 90 or below. I mean, it's hard to say, well, in what sense is that fair? I mean, there's just no way someone with an IQ below 90 is going to compete against one of these, these, these South African geniuses with these, with these really high IQs. So we should note that a lot of life is already unfair. Is there something distinctive about sport? That should make things different. Well, one, you might think that fairness, it's not itself a goal that we should have. And in fact, we don't. So as I mentioned in terms of like math, math grades, math competitions, even though things are, are vastly unfair. But second, when we try and fill out what is fairness, what makes something fair or unfair, it's actually remarkably difficult to do. And I would suggest the reason we can't do so is that there in fact is no such thing as fairness per se. Right, fairness may be dependent on some other value, but there's there's no way we can fill out fairness. Fairness itself is not something that's right or good. So unfairness is not something that's wrong or bad. So let's just look at a few candidates. What would make a competition? What, what would it mean for a competition to be fair? Well, it might be a basic feature, right? That we just know whether something's fair or not fair, and there's nothing more to be said, right? We just directly intuit it. The problem is, is that there are things which seem to make things fair or unfair. There's some sort of explanation. And if there's some sort of explanation, then fairness is not a basic feature. It's not, going back to the Potter Stewart claim, and Potter Stewart famously said about pornography, look, I may not be able to define it, but I know it when I see it. Unfairness doesn't work that way. There has to be something which explains why something is fair or unfair. So it does not look like fairness is a, is a basic wrong maker or, or bad maker. So I'm gonna talk in terms of the wrong. Second, that you might think, okay, something's unfair if it's undeserved, right? And something's undeserved if it doesn't track how much someone contributed or how hard someone worked or how hard someone sacrificed. The problem is that's not what we think happens in sport, right? If someone wins the 100 meter race, even if he doesn't contribute as much to the well-being of, of fellow runners of the world, even if he didn't work as hard, even if he didn't sacrifice as much, so what? He ran the fastest. Same thing with regard to grades. We want a chemistry professor to hand out grades based on how someone performed on the test, not based on how hard someone worked or how much he was sacrificed or how much he contributed. So it's not, you can't fill out fairness then in terms of dessert. You can't fill it out in terms of equality because equality is another value that seems to depend on other features. 
for example, we have separate with equal bathrooms for high school boys and girls. And, and most of us think that's just fine. But we don't think that we should have separate uh, but equal high schools for blacks and whites. Well, what distinguishes bathrooms from high schools? It's not enough just to say they're unequal. I mean, they're both unequal, but they seem to be unequal in different ways. What we need is something that explains why one inequality is permissible and the other one is not. That is, it's dependent on some other value. Well, if we don't like a basic explanation, we don't like dessert, we don't like equality, and obviously rights are not going to do the trick because the issue is what rights people have. We can't use rights to fill out fairness. The fact is that we can't fill out fairness. We don't know what it is, and we don't really value it, as seen in terms of how chemistry professors hand out grades, how we hand out who wins the 100 meter. Now, in terms of eradicating chemo sports, yeah, that's a real concern, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Verica Leah Thomas, there was, a, there, there was a mixed martial art, art, arts fighter called Fallon Fox, who became a transgender woman. He had a fight against another woman, and he broke her orbital bone. He gave her a concussion, and he gave her multiple stitches. She said she had never been subject to, to, to that, sort, that level of, of force or aggression before. So, yeah, that's, that's a real consideration that we're going to lose access to women's sport in terms of cisgender women. But on the other hand, transgender women will get access to these sports. So we have a trade-off. Now, from a consequentials consideration, consequentials was specialized in these sorts of trade-offs, we can address this. But in terms of unfairness, that is a non-consequentials approach to unfairness, it's hard to see how that's going to tell us what's fair or unfair. Let me just give you a couple other examples. There are some sports like um, wrestling, like crew in the Ivy League, like football in the Ivy League, like, like uh, mixed martial arts, have weight classes. Other sports do not. The NFL, basketball, soccer, things like that. Some sports in high school, college have age limits. Other ones don't. Is there, a, is, is there kind of a fairness in terms of, I mean, if you have weight limits, then lighter people benefit, heavier people don't. So wh why is that unfair? It's only we think there's something that should be like something like an equal chance. But one, there really isn't an equal chance given the different genetic potential. And two, even if there is an equal chance, why should that be something that is morally important to us? For example, in the NFL, quarterbacks and wide receivers are blazing fast. Most of us, even with state-of-the-art training, could not keep up with them. We couldn't cover them. And if they covered us, we couldn't get free. So in fact, no amount of training would allow us to perform for most of us as NFL wide receivers or cornerbacks. Is that unfair? I, I, I mean, it's, it's undeserved, but I mean, uh, on the other hand, you know, we, we want top line wide receiver cornerbacks. So the short version is, I don't think we should value unfairness. But even if we did value unfairness, there's no such thing as unfairness, at least as part of our moral reality. There are other considerations that might inform unfairness. I doubt it, but there might be. But unfairness itself is not going to be a wrong maker. So in short, when someone says it's just unfair to allow transgender women to compete in, in the Olympics, my response is, no, it's not. Because in fact, there's no such thing as unfairness per se. So you've raised two very interesting points. The one is... It's very difficult to, to define what fairness is. And the second one is it's unclear whether that has any role at all in determining 
whether a sport uh, should be played in a certain way. So I want to kind of address both. So the first is maybe we can define fairness in terms of what sport is actually for. So one way of viewing what the purpose of sport is, is to produce really good competition. So you want players who can compete against each other in a way that people will not always know who's going to win ahead of time. So you want some sort of level of uncertainty. And so you want a set of rules that's not going to massively favor one side. Imagine the rules of a particular game, let's say football, where that one team starts with a 10 point advantage over the other. They will win that game like 99 times out of 100. And, but it won't be interesting, right? It won't, it won't be interesting viewing. I also think that intuitively that would be an unfair rule. So perhaps fairness in this context, at least, I'm not talking about across all forms of justice and all forms of philosophical inquiry, but just within the context of sport, perhaps we could define fairness as a set of rules that allow players to compete as unexpectedly as possible so that it's it's more difficult to know who's going to win ahead of time. I can just foresee the count examples to this as I'm saying it. Then, then we might resolve the second problem. So the first problem is we don't know how to define it. The second problem is doesn't seem to play any role. Fairness doesn't seem to play any role. But it seems to me like if we define it this way, it would play a role in why we play sport in the first place, which again is to create an entertainment value. It's to, especially at the top level where there's observers, um, and fans, it seems really important that we don't know ahead of time who's going to win this match. Excellent. And, and I'm highly sympathetic to approach. I think it's a great approach. I, I don't think it works, but, but it's sort of thing that we, 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 this is how we look at the world. But note that if we defined sport as essentially being something for which the outcome is uncertain, then when I mean, Serena Williams plays the person ranked number 500, that would not be part of sport. Why? Because is there any uncertainty as to who's going to win that? So, I, I mean, it seems that as a definition of sport, it's mistaken because there can be cases where both metaphysically and epistemically, there is a right answer as to who's going to win and we know the right answer is, and yet we still think it's sport. So as a definition of sport, I think it's mistaken. So as a result, it follows that it's, sport is not essentially something for which the outcome is unknown. This strikes me as something that at most is a something that either participants or fans prefer. But even then, it's not always true. In, in the 1970s in the U.S., the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Open Raiders, I was a Raiders fan, uh, won almost all the time in, in NFL football. I, I don't think the fans are terribly upset by the fact that epistemically they knew that the odds were very large that their team was going to win. And in fact, if the, if the, if the chances were 99.9, I, I think they'd be even more overjoyed to watch the game. So I don't think um, that it's always a fan favorite. It's certainly not always a participant favorite. Right? If you tell a, a boxer or a sprinter that he has a 99.9% chance of beating his opponents, he would probably say, outstanding, I love it. So this is at most a contingent preference of some, perhaps even most, but not all, participants and fans. But third, I, I think what's really going on here is that uncertainty is something which we prefer or that brings us pleasure. And, and I, I think that has value to it, right? And that might be why, in fact, why we limit how much any one team can spend so that the teams stay competitive and we have sort of transfer funds from team to team or why the weakest team gets a draft first because, in fact, we enjoy watching it more. But, but I'm not sure that's a moral consideration above and beyond the fact that it just brings lots of utils about, right? I mean, 
Imagine that as a contingent matter, a particular society just loved the same team to win year in, year out. So but Spain would, would do horribly if, if Barcelona were not one or two every year. Well, that would seem to tell us from a utilitarian consideration, we should make sure that Barcelona is always near the top, right? Either one or two. That is the contingent preference for equal competition to just that. It's something which is valuable as a utilitarian consideration, but it's not a non-consequential consideration. So a couple of other thoughts on fairness. One of the ways in which people feel like you've done something unfair is if you breach the rules of the game. And the other one is if you use performance enhancing drugs. So if we think about Lance Armstrong, the complaint with Armstrong was that he used drugs that gave him an advantage and that's why he was able to get medals. His response was, well, everybody was doping. So there was some sort of tacit norm that you doped and if you didn't dope, you stood no chance. And that's what you had to do. It was sort of, you know, any legal rule in terms of the rules of the game, but tacitly everyone had to do it if you wanted to compete. I mean, imagine that you had the, the doped up version of sports. So you had two different leagues. So you had the no drugs allowed rule. And if you breached that rule, we would say you've done something unfair. You're not playing the sport properly because there's a rule. And the other one is, yeah, man, take whatever you like. Take steroids, take heroin, take cocaine, go right at it. And you know, you'd say, well, everybody has the opportunity to take these substances. Seems fair. Would we object to it? I mean, maybe some of those athletes are going to die a bit younger, but athletes die young all the time. I think that's an excellent point. I mean, and this shows that why sports are, are a moral free zone, particularly pro sports. Imagine exactly what you said. Imagine that you had two professional football leagues, American football. And one is like, you're allowed to take drugs and you're, you're of all sorts and you didn't have to go to college and the, and, and you're allowed to say what you want on Twitter. It can be kind of a, and the other has very clear rules about drug use and how you, how you import yourself and, and. And, and different fans go to see different rules and people sign up for which sort of league they want. It's hard to see what would be wrong about this system. So what that tells us is that there's nothing intrinsically fair or unfair about any set of rules. And more importantly, that it looks like these sports are moral free zones. The rules are set up by the owners and then people validly consent to them or not. Now, the result of this is that what's called an ownership theory of moral permissibility. That is, what is permissible is what the, the, the rules set by the owners. There are no independent right or wrong makers aside from force, fraud, or theft. Now, there are going to be a number of cases where people don't like that. One, where they think it, it um, is degrading, or whether it's exploitative, whether it's harmful. And examples might involve sports which allow for trash talking. Imagine that fans really like trash talking, but someone thinks, look, it just, it's insult content dignity, allow people to trash talk each other. Or they think, look, um, unrestricted mixed martial arts, which have no rounds and no one allows, allow people to kick the person to the head when he's down, that and certain, certain elbow strikes are allowed. Someone might say, well, that's, that's undignified. But, but again, on the sort of approach that Marty, if you're free to take drugs, why shouldn't you be free to have engage in unrestricted, rather restricted martial arts competitions? Or why should you be free to, to um, agree to the trash-talking basketball league rather than the, the polite basketball league? So I think that's a good point. Even if there were a right against these things, and again, it's hard to see what that right would be, it's unclear why people can't opt out of them just by validly consenting. 
So I, I, I want think to point to that to one, Mark, and I think that it shows you just why why sports in general, college sports in particular, are in fact a moral free zone. I want to consider a different Kantian account. So this would be a dignity-based account. So it's not a rights-based account. It's, it just says that people should be treated as an end in themselves or treated with dignity. That's the formulation I prefer, people treated with dignity. By the way, not a Kantian, but I'm trying to put in my two cents worth here. So, so here's the idea. There's a number of intuitions which people have which might run counter to yours. So first one is that they'd say, well, a discriminatory college league that discriminates against race, well, that seems intuitively problematic. And I think you've made a very good, good case for why there's no rights infringement involved there. But they might still say this, that certain people's dignity has been undermined. So black players, their dignity has been undermined because they can't compete within the sport. Maybe even white players' dignities have been undermined because they can't compete against black players who might be very good competition. For them, let's say it's a basketball league and the best players are black. I don't know if I'm raising horrendous stereotypes here, but I think it is often the case. And these white players want to compete against the best and these black players are not allowed to com compete. You might say that their dignity has been undermined. I think the, the case is more convincing for the black players and the white players, but still. So there, there seems to be some sort of moral problem. It's not just a moral free zone, it seems, if you buy into a dignity-based account. Now let's talk about the trans case. So there's both sides on this argument are raising a dignity-based objection. So the trans person who's not allowed to compete in the gender competition of their choice feels that their dignity has been undermined. And let's say it's a trans woman participating in women's sport the women who compete against her feel that their dignity has been undermined because they, they can't compete as well as they could have competed against a cisgendered woman. It seems like a lot of people across all these different spectra are raising dignity-based accounts. That seems to be the discourse, not just in my objection, but generally. Do you think there's anything to this? I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, but how do we translate that into a rights-based infringement or how do we translate that into a claim that I have a right as a cisgendered woman not to have a trans woman in my, in my field? But I, wa I, want to, I want to ask whether there's not a way of arguing for the claim that there are certain activities that should or shouldn't happen purely based on people's dignities involved, not based upon some right. Excellent. So I, I think, Jason, you raise an excellent point. And oftentimes my opponents in some of these topics, an, an excellent philosopher in Nicholas Dixon, has, has raised objections to, to, to my approach and things like trash talking and mixed martial arts based on dignity. And a lot of people raise that objection to other people's work on torture. They say, look, torture just, you know, violates people's dignity and therefore there's an inalienable right against it. So I think that dignity arguments fail. And here's why I think that. So there are two ways you'd go with a dignity argument. Someone could say there's an inalienable right to dignity, or they could say dignity justifies rights. Or they could say a third thing that dignity is independent of rights. The first one I think is the clearest, right? The other two I think are, are, are sort of not well as well thought out. So let's let's say that someone thinks that there's an inalienable right based on dignity, inalienable right to be treated in a dignified manner. Okay, and they often raise examples. I mean, you raise some good examples. Let me give you some examples that show up in literature. Some people like dwarf tossing contests are undignified. So even if um, the dwarfs and the, the patrons want to pay for it, the, the state shouldn't allow it. 
Other people think that male-centered sex for heterosexual married couples should not be allowed. Even if the wife is, it says, look, I mean, I get other things out of the marriage, but you know, my husband gets the sort of sex he wants. Some people think that's undignified. Some people think that sadomasochistic sex for the subordinate person is undignified, right? So the person who's being uh, talked about badly or being hit or something like that. And lastly, some people think prostitution is, is undignified, no matter how much you pay a prostitute. So they're kind of standard, it's some standard pieces of features of literature. There are several problems with the inalienable dignity right. So the, the first problem is even if there were a right to dignity, it's a little hard to see why it can't be waived. After all, who owns your right if not you? More specifically, here's the argument. What seems to justify rights is autonomy. Why think that? Well, rights have several features. One, they trump interests or consequences. So it doesn't look like they're justified by interests alone. Second, they provide a sphere of non-interference, right? So they provide elbow room for people to keep their hands off you and your stuff. And third, they provide a, a perimeter of act options. That is where you can pursue projects, even if they make your life go worse, or even if they make the world worse, then you're not pursuing these things. What provides a unified explanation for this perimeter of rights, both the fact that it, it trumps interests, it protects you against non-interference, and it provides elbow room or act options, seems to be that it protects autonomy. In particular, it protects the ability to have a self-shaped life, for a person to shape his life. But a per, if a person is going to shape his life, that the result is that he's going to have this have to have this primitive rights, and second, that he's going to have to be able to shape or change his primitive rights. You often want to change your moral relations with others, right? When you marry someone, you share your resources, and you give people permissions with regard to your body that they otherwise would not have. So you have to be able to change the primitive rights. And if you really are going to have a self-shaping life, it seems that you have to have narrative control of your life. That is, you decide what happens in your life, how long it lasts, what occurs within it, and what are your relations to others. This seems to involve the, your ownership of the rights. That is, you can eliminate rights, you can leave them in place, you can modify them. That is, the simplest way to see it is, if you're going to have narrative control of your life in a way which is justified by the value of a self-shaping life, then you own your rights. And if you own your rights, then you can waive them. So that's the first objection. We look at what justifies rights. It looks like um, it's autonomy and autonomy tells us that rights are all waivable. Second, when people talk about a dignity with dignity, I always thought they're doing poetry around the philosophy. And here's why. When you ask what is dignity, they, they have to tell you something. A lot of times they don't as a side note, but they usually have to say something like, well, you have dignity if and only if your life has intrinsic value. Uh, okay. So what follows from the fact that your life has intrinsic value? We need to know, in order to respect your intrinsic value, what is it that makes your life have intrinsic value? Well, if what makes your life have intrinsic value is something like autonomy, moral autonomy, rationality, free will, something in that family of things, then we respect you by respecting your autonomy or moral autonomy, or alternatively, your, your rationality, your free will, so on and so forth. And if we respect your dignity by respecting the fact that your intrinsic value and we respect intrinsic value by respecting what makes you have intrinsic value, namely autonomy, then we ought to respect your autonomy. If we respect your autonomy, then we have to respect your ability to waive those of your rights, uh, waive your rights. 
Sometimes people at John Locke say there's certain rights that are not waivable. It's just not true. I mean, rights can be reflexive. That is, rights can refer themselves. When I own a car, part of my owning a car includes the a bit power to eliminate that car by blowing it up or selling it to someone else. So a right, particularly a power regarding a right, can refer to itself. Same thing that's true for a car is true for me. So the second reason is that when we try and fill out what it means to treat them with dignity, we end up with something like people have waivable rights. So now just one third objection. Some people say, well, dignity and operates independent rights. But they sure are, you know, you know, Kirshner, you rights freak. Uh, yeah, I'll grant it all rights are waivable. You and your, you and your, you know, your, your libertarian, you know, freak show. But so dignity competes against rights or it trumps rights or it justifies rights. It's a, it's a more important neighbor. And I'm tempted to say, well, what's the wrong maker? I mean, if, if A wrongs B, again, we're back to this argument that A seems to infringe a duty owed towards B. And if he infringes duty, he is right. If, he, if, if dignity is not itself a duty or doesn't justify a duty, then how does it relate to rights? That is, what does dignity talk do if we can't either identify with or cash down in terms of a right? So in short, I, I do not think dignity talk is satisfying. In fact, I find it extremely unsatisfying. And some days I find it out and out offensive. And I'm hoping you do too. So we had Colin Byrne on the show to talk about dignity and he sort of shares some of your skepticism, but ultimately comes out kind of pro-dignity. But yeah, there's a fair amount of dignity. (laughs) (laughs) So if we think about it in terms of autonomy, let's think about the the trans athlete. So the trans athlete like Leah Thomas says, look, when I was male, swimming was a big part of my life. I really enjoyed swimming. I wanted to be able to use my own body, make choices, and swimming was one of those important choices. The other big choice I wanted to make about my life was what my gender identity is. And that's another fundamental value to me. So that's why I'm now a woman. And I shouldn't have to pick between these two decisions about how my life goes. I want to be uh, a woman who swims. Um, and I want to be able to swim you know, competitively in a woman's team. Like when I was a man, I could swim competitively in a men's team. And so when you discriminate against me on this basis, you are messing with my free choices, my autonomous decisions. Okay. Then you have, let's say, the women who are now not able to compete. They say, I've spent my whole life in women's sports. I I really care about this thing. And it's just not possible for me to compete against Leah Thomas. And so you're restricting my ability to compete at a top level by allowing Leah Thomas to compete in the same team as me. So you've got these two different kinds of autonomy claims. I wonder if the one could trump the other in principle, or as you say, whether it's a dead heat and you're allowed to do either, or whether it's a matter of saying, whatever you do, you're wronging someone. And then you need some other tiebreaker to decide which wrong is less bad, maybe some kind of consequentialist tiebreaker. We, we have these two competing, as you point out, we have these two competing autonomy claims. One, I'm, I'm not sure they're actually competing because I actually think that autonomy, if it justifies rights at all, leaving aside rights of rectification, which we'll get to in a second, it justifies rights to property and only rights to property so that there's no right to compete or not compete. There, there's a right to this piece of land or this house or this car. So, so I'm not sure there's anything like a right to compete. I mean... If the Ivy League owns these pools and it says you may swim in them only if you satisfy conditions X, Y, and Z, I, I don't have a right to step onto the Ivy League's property and use their pools or compete in their, their swimming races. So I, I don't think that autonomy gives rise 
to the sort of rights that we're talking here, talking about here. One advantage just there is if, if rights, if autonomy justifies only in all the oh, property rights and only property rights, then we, we don't seem to get inconsistent rights. That is, we start out with a bunch of natural rights. We own our bodies. From these, we derive various non-natural rights, rights to objects. And if we start out with a consistent set of rights and use valid derivations to non-natural rights, then the non-natural rights will be, all be consistent. And as a result, all the rights will end up being consistent so that we don't end up with the possibility of conflicting rights. I think there's a deeper point you're making, which is that really the theory of rights based on autonomy or based on interests, that, that there's sort of, a, that there's sort of a, a problem with foundation. And the problem with the foundation is people have, they can have conflicting autonomy or conflicting interests. So let's, let's assume that what's, what justifies a right is an interest in autonomy, just to keep it simple. And people can have conflicting interests. Well, what do we do then? Well, the problem with this is that rights are going to trump aggregate interests. But if that's the case, then we can't give the right to whoever has the stronger interest. But we also can't say what rights someone has independent of interests. We can't moralize the interests because we're trying to get morality from rights rather than vice versa. So we have a real problem in going from interests to who has what right, particularly if rights have this trumping function. In addition, in, in addition to this, this, this problem, we also have problems with different people that have different rights. I mean, if I have an interest um, in smoking because I'm only going to use it when I'm really nervous and, and actually make my life go better, but Jones is going to be a complete smoking nine day. It's going to kill him early. Th then we could have very different rights. I could have a right to smoke and Jones wouldn't, even though um, intuitively we have to have the same rights. Even more problematic is that sometimes two people action can affect a third person, but it doesn't seem that the third person really has a right. So if, if Jones and, and Smith having sex really upsets the church lady, then she has an interest in that I'm not having sex, but that doesn't seem to be a feature of whether or not Jones has a right to have, uh, have sex with Smith. So I think your point at a fundamental level is devastating. I think there's a real problem with seeing how it is that autonomy or interest justify rights. So, but leaving aside that fundamental problem, if autonomy justifies and only justifies rights to property, I think the sort of consider, concern you're raising doesn't arise. Now, there are other rights. You might think you have rights to rectification. So if someone, if someone unjustly harms you, you might have a right to use self-defense. You might have a right to punish them, or you might have a right to compensation. It's not clear that's a right to a particular object, but let's leave aside rights to rectification. So yeah, great, great point. And I agree with it. I think what's very interesting about this discussion is that you've taken a position that both sides of the transgender debate would disagree with. So you haven't said, well, trans people should be allowed to participate in sport. And you haven't said, well, trans people should not be allowed to participate in sport. You've said, well, there's a bunch of stipulated rules to these sports and they're moral free zones. They could have been different rules and they'd be, well, no morally better or worse than any other set of rules. And whatever those rules are, the rules we should have, uh, or not should have, but just do have de facto. We could have a, a different de facto set of rules. So it's interesting because Mark and I have been debating this vociferously for weeks, taking up these other two positions that I've mentioned. But I, I imagine this position will piss off everyone on both sides of this debate. <laughs> uh, I want one more stab at this. Okay. Sure. So, yeah, so this, this I, stab... I, I, by the way, I, 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 I suspect you're right, uh, but <laughs> what can I do? I mean, rights are rights. You don't. We can't manufacture rights out of thin air. So there's no right infringement. There's no right infringement. 
Okay, so I want so so I wanna I wanna grant then that this is a moral free zone. Let's grant that. Okay, and I wanna grant that there's no rights either way, that the consequences are unclear. I'll grant all of that. Okay, but do you agree that there are certain sets of rules for sports that are better than other sets of rules? Now, what I mean by better, well, I mean that they produce the kind of sport that we would like to have. Now, now, I'd like to cash that out in terms of things like uncertainty, although you provided a good objection for why uncertainty is a necessary condition for sport. So I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going to say uncertainty is a necessary condition for sport, but I might say it enhances it, right? So suppose we have two sets of rules. The one is that in every match, there's a coin flip and wherever the coin lands, that team gets a massive overwhelming advantage from day one in the sport, from minute one in the sport, and it virtually guarantees that they'll win. So that's one set of rules. The second set of rules is that you don't do the, the coin flip and you don't give one team an, a massive unassailable advantage. Um, do you agree that the, the game where you don't have the coin flip and there's no massive unassailable advantage granted right at the beginning of the game, entirely arbitrarily, that that would be a better sport? So what I, what I think, and I suspect you and I agree, I, I suspect it depends if it maximizes the good. In most cases, I think it does in fact maximize the good. People get more pleasure by watching even matches. But I think there are plenty of counterexamples. I mean, I'll just give you two counterexamples. One is, imagine, so in the, in the, in the sort of pre-World War II period, Americans had a vast interest in seeing Joe Louis, Louis beat uh, American um, heavyweight fighter, beat Max Schmeling, an, an excellent German heavyweight fighter. And imagine just for simplicity, there's, there's far more Americans than there were Germans. Um, is it the case that Americans would have more pleasure in a, in a kind of completely one-sided, highly predictable victory or kind of a really uneven match, really even match in which it, it's nail-biting? It's not in the least bit obvious to me that people would prefer the second to the first. Lots of fans really enjoy their teams blowing out opponents every week. Um, okay, but hold on, hold on. Isn't there a good response to that, though? So the response is that the reason for that imbalance is not arbitrary. So it's got to do with enormous numbers of years of training and incredible incredible practice. And whereas in the case I'm giving, the coin flip, it's by definition arbitrary, who has the massive unassailable advantage. So I, I think the point you're making is an excellent one, and I agree with that. I, I just think it tells us that as a contingent matter, People like sport outcomes that are governed by um, skill rather than governed by random factors. I, I think that's absolutely, even our game shows have a certain amount of, of skill added to them. But one, I, I don't think that it means they want no random element. We actually have a surprising number of random elements with regard to coin toss and things like that. Overtime rules in the NFL, which is surprisingly outcome determinative. But so I think that what you're saying is absolutely right. But I at least think it tells us contingent feature about people's preferences. We don't especially like random features, but that's not to say that we sometimes don't like uneven competitions. I mean, many years ago in the, the UFC, the kind of you know, professional MMA league, they had a, a fight tournament entitled David versus Goliath. And they had these kind of giant fighters fighting these undersized fighters. And I suspect a lot of people like the idea of seeing what these undersides got. And they knew like, look, the odds are out of strongly against them, but you know, let's see what these plucky little guys could do. Even though the odds are like unbelievably strongly in favor of the larger, the larger individuals. It's not clear to me that fans 
uh, wouldn't enjoy that, right? It's it's not clear that they don't enjoy the, 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 these these games, which one side is highly favored. When you watch a professional tennis tournament and you see on the early rounds the top ranking people playing the low rank ranked people, the odds are heavily stacked in favor of those top ranked people. And I don't think from from for many people, it doesn't make the game any any less enjoyable. It's like they want to see the, the lead players just walk through those lower ranked players. So I, I guess I think you're absolutely right. That is a contingent psychological fact. People like games that are determined by skill rather than chance. But I don't think that's always true. And I'm not sure what falls from that other than a general something, which which is that we ought to pay for things which make the consumers happy. So at the end of a sports game, certain sports have a thing where they award the most valuable player to someone. How do you think we ought to do that? I mean, it's always struck me as sort of strange in that the kinds of things that sports players do are fundamentally different from each other. So if we think about a game like soccer, you've got strikers who are scoring goals, often are going to be very celebrated because they're in the, the limelight. You've got the goalkeeper on the other end who's saving a bunch of goals, limelight players. Then you've got all those people in between who are assisting one side or the other. And now at the end of the team, we say, so-and-so was the most valuable player. And almost always it's going to be to the winning team uh, that's going to get that. Even if you could have had, let's say, an incredible goalie who saved 20 goals, his team was just absolutely awful, or uh, well, the other side had an incredible striker, there seems to be some kind of arbitrariness in how we decide this. Is there a way that would be non-arbitrary to decide this? So as a practical matter, I think we do a pretty good job of, of picking out who we think is most valuable. But as a theoretical matter, there is no answer as to who is the most valuable player. And let me explain this. Also, the most valuable player doesn't just matter for sports. Right, you might think, okay, we care a little bit about who wins the, the most valuable player in, in the NFL or the NBA or, or, or Major League Baseball. But, but really, the way in which we pick out the most valuable player could also be the way in which we select who would make a better spouse or which of our children is a better children or who we should hire for a job. And we could either do it looking backward, right? If you had two wives, we could say, well, is wife A better, more valuable than wife B? Or if we're going to have two children, is it child one? in the past better than child uh, two, or if you're adopting, you could say, look, however we go about picking out the most valuable player, we should use that mechanism to decide which child we should adopt. So I think this matters quite a bit and outside of sports. Let me talk about it in the context of sports. So when we decide how valuable a player is, what we do is we look at how well a team does in the actual world and how well they do it in a um, counterfactual world. That is the world in which the player is not present. And we say the difference between the actual world and the counterfactual world, which I'll call the baseline world, is the value, the value of the player. That is what the player adds to the team. The theoretical problem is picking out what that baseline world is. So what we could do is we could look at, well, um, let's say that you have a, uh, in baseball, you have a first baseman. We say, okay, what would happen if this first baseman were not to have played? The problem is that if we use like an average first baseman, you think, well, how is that relevant, right? That doesn't tell you how much you contributed to the team. That tells you how much you would have contributed to across all teams. But that's not a measure of his actual value. That's a measure of his average value across a number of teams. On top of the fact, it's hard to see why we should look at the average first baseman rather than the average backup first baseman, right? That seems to be more relevant. But then once we're looking at the average backup first baseman, we'd want to be even more fine-grained. Is the average backup first baseman in this ballpark? At this portion of the season, with this much resources to spend by the, by the by the team, that is looking at the average seems to be arbitrary, and addresses a different issue. 
namely how much would this player, how much value would he have had across, let's say 32 different teams. On the other hand, what we could look at is the actual backup. So what would have happened had this player been out for the season? Okay. Now there are going to be several problems with this comparison. One problem with this comparison is if you believe in libertarian free will, then there's not clear there's an answer. Right. So how well would the backup play, would the actual backup player have done? There's no answer to libertarian free will. It's true because it, it was simply under the person's control at the time he, he acted. Second, you get really counterintuitive results. So for, there was a, there was an excellent first baseman from the New York Yankees called Wally Pip, who was an all-star first baseman, and he might think he contributed quite a bit to the Yankees' success. Unfortunately for him, his backup was Lou Gehrig, perhaps the greatest first baseman that the Major League Baseball has ever seen. If this were true, then the tactical player would have had negative value for the team. That's an odd result. Some of us are okay accepting it, but it is an odd result that an excellent player could still contribute negatively to someone's life. By analogy, if Jones has a superb wife, but Jones is a real catch. So if he hadn't married Alice, he would have married Betty. It was even better. Alice would actually have negative value in his life, even though she was a superb wife. The third problem and the real problem though, is that there's no way to pick up the baseline. That is, there are real problems with the counterfactual. So let me use an individual case and then look at it more broadly. So imagine you have Peyton Manning was a very famous quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts and then for the um, Denver Broncos. Now imagine a linebacker hits him, smashes him in the leg and knocks him out for the season. And we say, okay, well, what would have happened? So, or, so we say, okay, what would have happened if Peyton Manning had not been knocked out for the season? Is there an answer to this? Well, I, I don't think there's any one answer. We might know what, what happens. The linebacker didn't hit him quite as hard. It's only knocked him out for one game rather than for eight. Did the linebacker miss him altogether? In which case, he's not injured whatsoever. Did the linebacker just stand, you know, still? So that was a touchdown pass that led to a victory that the Colts otherwise would not have gotten. That is once you subtract out the hitting act, the linebacker hit him in this way with this force, which possible world do we go to? I don't think there's a right answer. That is, even if we subtract out day Ray, the day Ray act in question, that is particular act in question, there's no answer to it. We can't look at the nearest possible world because nearness, there's something that makes it near. There's nothing nearness per se. What matters is the purpose which we're looking at it. Let me choose one more example. Very famous example by Alistair Norcross. He gives an example of Bobby Knight, a very famous and very hot-headed basketball coach for the University of Indiana. And, by, and the, the example is, Bobby Knight, uh, you know, a, a philosopher insults Bobby Knight, so he chunks the philosopher really bad, damages his throat, and causes him to talk funny. But if he hadn't, he, he's been taking anger management classes, but if he hadn't chunked the philosopher, he would have pulled the philosopher's arms off and beaten the philosopher to death. So the claim is, okay, so we have choking the philosopher. Did Bobby Knight harm the philosopher? Well, by hypothesis, he benefited, right? Because if he hadn't choked him, he would have beaten him to death. Uh, what you might think, well, but the comparison we want to make is if he chucked him rather than putting his hands on him altogether. What this suggests is when we look at harm, we're looking at the purpose of inquiry. That is, we, we, our, or the baseline we pick, it depends on what we want to discover. So the third objection, which I, I kind of been going around about way of, of approaching is there is no one baseline world. When we subtract out the act in question or the person in question, day Ray, there's no one answer as to what world we go to. There's no way to solve it with a theory of nearness or similarity. 
when it comes to particular acts, we looked at things like what was the purpose of inquiry. So because there's no one baseline, there's no answer as to how much a player contributes to a team. And if there's no answer to how much a player contributes to a team, there's no actual answer as to how much value a player has. So my kind of long-winded answer is that, in fact, there is no answer as to who is the most valuable player because there's no fact that matters to how much value a player has. Looking at the average player answers the wrong question and an eight gets arbitrary. Looking at the actual backup depends on there being a specific counterfactual, which there is not. And in addition, it runs a foul libertarian free will and it gets cases wrong when you have an excellent backup. The downside of this is when we're trying to pick out who would be the best child to adopt, which spouse to select, which spouse, in fact, in, in, in Jones's past was the, was the best for him, there's no answer. This is a highly upsetting result. I don't like it. And for consequentialists, Jason, I'm looking at your direction. This is a, this is a severe problem for consequentialism. I actually claim it's a, yeah, it's a severe problem for consequentialism. It's interesting because I, I see it as sort of a virtue of the account. So, so the idea that I, I can't proclaim with enormous confidence that choosing wife A or B was the right choice, that, that seems like something attractive in an account. I mean, perhaps the consequentialist wants to be able to make that decision when wife A or wife B is particularly horrendous and the other seems like a really good person. But barring those sort of circumstances, it seems like a virtue. So here's why I don't think it is a virtue. Here would be a theory that you might think is true if consequentialism is true. That act number one is better than act number two, equally as good as act number two or worse than act number two, but it can't be more than one. But if there's no one answer, then either we end up with a view that act one is none of the three regarding act two, where act one is more than one of the three with regard to act two, that doesn't seem to be correct. Another way to put it is if consequentialism is true, there has to be a right answer with regard to whether an act maximizes the good. If there's no right answer as to whether an act maximizes the good, then consequentialism is not true. So um, as much as I, I kind of like, I, I agree with your approach in terms of personally, it's kind of good when you're making the personal selections that there is in fact no right answer. As a theoretical matter, I, I think it sinks consequentialism. And I, I, I say this extremely painfully and reluctantly. So, yeah, it's a very good point. I mean, once one generalizes beyond wife choices, I think it becomes a huge problem because the consequentialist has to say, well, certain consequences are better than others for certain actions. We assess them and we must perform the action with the best consequences. And if if that methodology doesn't hold and we can't do that, well, then the whole thing falls apart. Right. And, and let me say one thing with regard to expectation consequentialism, which is a, a theory you, you and I have discussed before, which is that, look, what makes an act right is not its actual consequences, probabilistic consequences. The problem with this is it, it sinks that as well, right? If they, let's say there's just three options and equal each has a, a third of a chance of occurring, and then we have a magnitude of, of utility for each one, uh, then we could say, okay, here's the expected outcome for act one, here's the expected outcome for act two. The problem is if, there, if there's no magnitude of outcome under scenario number one and scenario number two, then we don't actually get an expectation value. And if we don't get an expectation value, then we don't get, we, we, we expectation consequentialism doesn't get off the ground. So, but as, as a side note, I, I should mention, cause I'm, I'm, I'm taking shots at consequential. I mean, Wright's theory runs to similar problems, right? If there's no one answer as to whether or not you're act promotes or, or, or increases or lessens someone else's autonomy or sort of sets back their interest, doesn't set back their interest, 
then there's going to be no right answers to whether or not you infringe their rights. So one response that um, you might make, and I think this would be devastating to say, oh, well, look, it's, it's a curse on both houses that pox on both houses that, that you know, non-consequentialism is the same problem that consequentialism does. Fair enough. But when it comes to the MVP, yeah, I just think this is a real theoretical problem. So in practice, we have no problem saying, yeah, Peyton Manning was the best player this year or uh, Michael Jordan. But in practice, we try and fill that out. It's extraordinarily difficult. So I want to give you uh, a case for, for why I think supporting certain sports teams is a terrible idea. Okay. So imagine that you live in Manchester in, in England and you support your local team and everybody who plays on the team is from Manchester and the football stadium is in Manchester and you go to the, the football stadium and you cheer for your guys and all these guys make sense for you to support this team and the team that you you hate are Liverpool or close by and you root against them and they're your arch rivals okay but over time what happens is that both sides get injected with a whole bunch of money and man you guys are like we'd, we'd like to be able to beat these Liverpool, these Liverpoolians into into the mud and so let's start buying players and so you start buying players from all around the world the best of the best okay so you get guys from Brazil and from Germany and from Spain and you do very very well and you do so well that the number of fans that you have can't be contained in your stadium in Manchester anymore so you move out of Manchester and you set up your stadium okay but then the Liverpoolians sort of get onto the game as well and they start buying a whole bunch of players and they have their team. And uh, some Russian oligarch comes to and goes, that Liverpoolian team is really, really good. Why don't we buy all of them and we'll sell them all the guys on the Manchester team? Now, if you think about all the different steps that have happened along this time and you've got your Man United supporter who's been rooting all along the way, I want to say to him, well, why are you supporting these guys? Is it because they're from Manchester, where you're from? Well, none of them are from Manchester anymore. Is it because the state is Manchester? Well, no, it's moved. Is it because you hate Liverpool? Well, suddenly all the guys who you were rooting against, you're rooting for because they're sitting on the Manchester team. So it seems to me that supporting a particular side, and this really is what a modern soccer looks like, is you've got all these transfers, international teams. It seems weird to say, I love Man United and I fucking hate those guys from Liverpool. Right, so I understand your objection. You're saying that, look, uh, being a fan in, in this day of free agency and, and international competition, it's unclear what you're getting emotionally attached to, right? I mean, if you get attached to the, the Manchester team and you hate the Liverpool team and the, the, the Liverpool players all come to Manchester, the Manchester players all go to Liverpool, what is that you're attached to? I mean, just the fact that it has a Manchester name on it. It's not this collection of individuals because they've switched teams. It seems arbitrary just to attach to the, the Manchester accounts and it, it, and it seems to be one of those, right? It's either you're attaching to the Manchester name of, of the players, but since both are irrational, it's irrational. Well, I, I guess what I would say to that is a lot of our preferences are irrational, but they, they still bring us a lot of pleasure. So for example, it might be that someone likes Alice much better than Betty, even though Betty would have been much better for him because he has a long history with Alice. Now you might think, okay, well, look, history is to some cost. And, and you, you might think Betty would be much better for your future. Why would you put a weight on, on some costs that, that's standard, standardly irrational under economics? And, and yet it seems, say, look, do all our preferences have to be justified by reason? I mean, can we have irrational preferences or, or preferences that are not supported by a balance of reasons? So I go back and forth on this. I suspect you're right. It's irrational to have such a preference. But it's not clear to me that it's imprudent or bad or wrong. 
So by analogy, imagine that kind of the standard account for Robert Nozick. So Jones has an absolutely really good wife. She's a, she's a wife. If we gave her a grade, she'd get like a, a 96, but we could replace her with a, with a perfect doppelganger with a slight improvement would have a 97. And he would have the second wife long enough that the, the, the net gave for the one extra point grade would outweigh whatever is, is in, in terms of the, the shared past. Most people would say, no, look, I, I just don't love B, even though B would better for me, even though B would generate more love. I, I just have an irrational commitment to A. And you say, well, what is it about A that you love? Is it her substratum? Well, substratum's not lovable. Is it her properties? Well, can't be her properties because B has slightly better properties than A. Is it something other than substratum or properties? Well, what else is lovable about a person other than her substratum or her properties? I, I think the answer is that that we think, look, does love have to be, in order to be justified, does it have to be um, justified on the basis of reasons? And, and here, I'm, I'm just not sure I have an answer. I'm tempted to say that everything that's rational must be justified by reasons, in which case I'd say, yeah, the love is irrational. And similarly, the person who loves Manchester is irrational. On the other hand, I'm tempted to say, look, there could just be certain preferences you have that, that you need not defend, that they, they are constitutive of what you care about. And, um, just a quick story, but I, I was at school for a year in England and I remember I was sitting at the table with a bunch of, um, you know, British soccer fans. And I said, I asked him about, I think it was like Manchester, but one of those. And then he said, well, I, I don't know if we have the best team, but we definitely have the best soccer hooligans <laughs> and presumably they don't switch. So even if you don't want to root for your team, cause they, they switched over Liverpool, your hooligans stayed with you the whole time. Yeah, no, the hooligans are in it for life. Stephen, this has been an absolute delight again. I love having you on the show. I think you've also just got this incredible ability to take different strands of philosophy and tie them together to show the multiple implications of different views that we can start off talking about sport and we can wind up ending up talking about love. And that's providing light for both those topics. And that's really marvelous. To, to the real, real joy to talk to you guys, man. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And let me just say, I... I your help over the last couple of months has been outstanding and, and, and appreciated beyond more than I can express. So thank you.